This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. I have the honor of introducing him. Um, and again, once again, I have the honor of introducing him as not just one of my heroes, not just as someone who I look up to, but as a brother, as a friend, as a man of God, as a husband, as a father. Um, Jamar and I talk pretty much every day. Um, we poke each other just how we joke on the podcast, kind of how we joke in real life. Um, but there has been, there have been very few people, I can count them on one hand, that have influenced and impacted my walk in the way that he has. And a lot of people come up to us and they talk about how um, they found Pastor Michael, they found the witness at a crucial point in their life, in their, in their journey with Jesus. And that if it had not been for, I hear that, like, if it had not been for y'all, I would have, I would have fell away or I would have left the faith. That's kind of how I feel about Jamar. Because he got me, he caught me at a crucial time. At a crucial time in my development as a man, at a crucial time in my development as, as a black man, as a black Christian man. I'm thankful for you, bro. Thank you, man. Thank you. I'm sorry. I don't mean to make you cry before. You going to cry? Is that? <laughs> but he is the author of The Color of Compromise. He is the president of The Witness. And this is beyond anything that we could have ever thought would happen. But I want you to honor him. Give honor to him. Honor is due. Because without him, none of us would be here. Can we give it up for our brother, Jamar Tisby? Soon to be Dr. Jamar Tisby. Thank you so much. Please have a seat. As I often do, I want to start our time together reflecting on history. It was a long time ago. Germany. The year was 1505. A young man named Martin Luther was riding his horse when he was caught in a torrential downpour, a severe thunderstorm. It was so bad that he feared for his life. And in a fit of desperation, Martin Luther cried out, Saint Anne, help me, and I will become a monk. Well... Luther survived the storm, and although he was on the pathway to becoming a lawyer, he stayed true to his word, and he became a monk. Once he became a monk, Luther became one of these real holy folks. One of these people who, who, who just makes you feel bad because they are so over the top. Let me give you some examples. So he did his devotions every day. If Luther so much as sneezed wrong, he would go to confession. He was 
very disciplined in his practice of the Christian faith. He just he followed all the rules. He described himself in that period, and he said, if anyone could have earned heaven by the life of a monk, it was I. But see, Luther had a problem. In the way he practiced his faith, he couldn't reconcile two passages of Scripture. James 2.24 and Romans 3.28. James says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. There's that passage. And then Romans says, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Justified by works, justified by faith. Luther couldn't make sense of that. What do you do with that? And he said, quote, I hated that word, the righteousness of God, by which I had been taught according to the custom and the use of all teachers that God is righteous and punishes the unrighteous sinner. So in other words, what Luther was experiencing was an understanding of the faith that was based on his level of obedience to God. And he was saved and on his way to heaven to the degree that he kept every part of God's word. Now, if you've ever tried to do that, you know that we can't. And so he came to hate this phrase, the righteousness of God, because it was a standard he could never live up to. But then, over the course of time, Luther was struck by another verse. It was Romans 1.17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So first, it's necessary to understand the context in which Luther is reading these things. In 16th century Europe, the church meant the Roman Catholic Church. The Pope is the supreme authority on earth. Over time, corruption invaded the Roman Catholic Church. And, and, and one thing that Luther was particularly dismayed by was the selling of indulgences, which literally meant the selling of forgiveness. There was a phrase at that time that said, once a coin into the coffer clings, a soul from purgatory heavenward springs. Once a coin into the coffer clings. A soul from purgatory heavenward springs. So they were buying time out of purgatory and into heaven. But Luther came to understand that the righteousness of God meant, meant, meant the righteousness that God gives you through faith in Jesus Christ so that it's not that you actually are righteous in the sense of fulfilling every part of the law, but that you are considered righteous because Jesus Christ was righteous. And then when he realized this, he wrote, this immediately made me feel as though I had been born again. And as though I had entered through open gates into paradise itself. From that moment, I saw the whole face of scripture in a new light. But it didn't stop there. You see, with this new understanding of scripture on October 31st, 1517, what we now call Reformation Day, 502 years ago this month, Martin Luther nailed 95 theses to the church doors at Wittenberg. And what, what, what the act of nailing those theses to the church doors meant 
was not only a disagreement, was not only an objection, but it was an invitation to public dispute. He said, let's debate this. And debate they did. In 1521, he was called to meet the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. And before all the court and all the royalty, they gave him a choice. Martin Luther, publicly recant of your heretical beliefs in salvation by faith alone, or the Roman Catholic Church will excommunicate you, consider you a non-believer. Well, Martin Luther was a stubborn man. And he famously said, unless I can be instructed and convinced with evidence from the Holy Scriptures or with open and clear and distinct grounds of reasoning, then I cannot and will not because it is neither safe nor wise to act against conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. Luther's teachings and actions helped spark what became known as the Protestant Reformation. And if you're sitting here today and you're not Greek Orthodox or Roman Catholic, then you can trace your theological and ecclesiastical lineage all the way back to the Protestant Reformation. I tell you that story of Martin Luther because as we talk about continuing the 400-year journey of black joy and justice, we need to talk about the future. What does continuing this journey look like? So the title of this message is Continuing the Journey, a Racial Reformation in the 21st Century. What I believe we need to continue the 400-year journey of black joy and justice is nothing less than another reformation, a racial reformation, a fundamental reorientation in the way we think of theology, the practice of Christianity, and the way we approach racial division in the church and beyond. This is how fundamental it is. Listen, when people assume That to be pro-black means to be anti-white. We need a reformation. When an oppressed minority group says, we need space to gather amongst ourselves for strength and support, but then you get accused of reverse racism, we need a reformation. When black Christians go to predominantly white Christian colleges and seminaries and leave scarred and wounded because of all the racism they experience in, 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 in what is supposed to be a Christian space, we need a racial reformation. When black Christians go to predominantly white churches and leave scarred and bruised because they're treated as second-class citizens in the household of God, we need a reformation. When Black Lives Matter is a controversial statement, we need a reformation. When white Christian ministries have millions of dollars, church buildings, well-paid pastors, retreats in the woods, while black-led ministries struggle to keep the doors open and the lights on, We need a racial reformation. So if we are 
If we are to root out the racism that has affected every part of the body of Christ, particularly in the United States, then we need a movement just as monumental and just as radical as the Reformation. We can't play around the edges with this stuff. We can't do little cosmetic surgery. We need to get in there, rip out the illness, and bind up that wound in just as radical a transformation as the Protestant Reformation was. So today I want to talk about three requirements of a racial reformation. Now there could be more, but, but, but here are three requirements of a racial reformation. A racial reformation requires remembering or reminding. A racial reformation requires a reckoning. And a racial reformation requires reforming. Reminding, reckoning, reforming. Now I'm calling this a racial reformation, but in reality it's simply a biblical reformation. If you want to get really down into it, the Protestant Reformation was nothing less than a revival. It was a back-to-the-Bible movement. In a similar way, The Reformation, the racial Reformation is formed around the Bible and is formed around Scripture. And if there's a passage of Scripture at the heart of what we need in a racial Reformation, I think it's this one, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. You know that one? Yeah. This passage contains the first mention of what we call the doctrine of the imago Dei or the image of God. As the doctrine of salvation by faith was the core doctrine around which the Protestant Reformation revolved, the doctrine of the image of God would be the core doctrine around which the racial Reformation will revolve. Therefore, a racial Reformation requires a reminder that we are all made in the image and likeness of God. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds and the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created humankind in God's own image. In the image of God, God created them. Male and female, God created them. So what does it mean to be made in the image and likeness of God? We need a reminder. In what ways is humankind similar to or different from the Creator? We're like God in our ability to reason, to to exercise dominion or stewardship over the earth by His permission. We have emotions. We are capable of making moral choices. but, But we are not God. We are God's image. And so there are ways that we are not like God. We we, we are not all-knowing. We are not all-powerful. We are not thrice holy. We cannot save ourselves from the wages of sin. I like the way theologian Herman Boving put it. The image extends to the whole person. While all creatures display vestiges of God, only a human being is the image of God and is such totally in soul and body, in all their faculties and powers, in all conditions and relations. As our sister Akemeni reminded us yesterday, we don't simply bear the image, we don't simply have the image, we are the image of God. 
But here's the thing that we often miss because we learn these things from European theologians such as Bavink, and it's a very individualistic understanding of the faith. So when we think about the image of God, we think, I, myself, individually am created in the image of God. What we don't quite understand or get to is that it's not just alone or in isolation that we are the image of God. It is collectively and together that we are the image of God. You see, there's no single people group that could adequately image the image of God. And so God created different people groups, different shapes, different sizes, different colors, different languages. And so that when we all get together collectively, we image God. Like different facets of a diamond, each revealing the splendor of God from a different angle. So what does this image of God have to do with a racial reformation? Well, biblical teachings on the image of God guide us and tell us how to think about race and racism. If we're each made in God's likeness and image, then any presumption of superiority based on skin color, culture, or ethnicity is sin. It denies the truth of the image of God. In his book, From Every People and Nation of Biblical Theology of Race, J. Daniel Hayes says, Racism, or the presupposition that one's own race is superior or better than another, is a denial that all people are made in the image of God. It's theological. Racism in both its individual and institutional manifestations denigrates the image of God in other human beings. The doctrine of the image of God shows us that it is our duty to exalt God, not ourselves over one another. We have no right to look down on any other image bearer. And by the way, this extends to all image bearers. This extends to image bearers who are Christian or not Christian. The image of God extends to LGBTQ people. The image of God extends to all races, whether black or white, if you are of Latin American descent, Asian descent, Native American descent, the image of God extends to the able-bodied and the disabled. The image of God extends to those with a PhD or a GED. The image of God extends to the famous or the infamous. The image of God extends to every human being. You are a human being, then you are created in the image and likeness of God. That goes for children in the womb and out of the womb. That goes for documented and undocumented. That goes for incarcerated and free. Everyone means everyone is made in the image and likeness of God. And we need to remember this when it comes to race because people in power have historically diminished the image of God in people of African descent. Based on someone's skin color, they were deemed less human, less worthy of dignity. But the doctrine of the image of God teaches us that pigment does not determine personhood. So as we look at this conference, from the very start, 
We wanted this to be a black-centered space and occasion. Not because we devalue other racial and ethnic expressions of Christianity, but because we value black expressions of Christianity. We value black expressions of Christianity in the midst of a society that has looked down on black people and black churches and black theology. You know, the only time I heard about black theologians in seminary was as the example of what not to do. So in that kind of context, we value black expressions of Christianity. We value black expressions of Christianity as a tribute to all that we have been through and all that God has done for us. We value black expressions of Christianity enough to want to share it with people of different races and ethnicities. We want to invite you into this beautiful picture. Thank you. And it is a beautiful picture of diversity when we as embodied black people can bring our full selves and our full faith to the table. Now, 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 now like, like Pastor Faison, I'm an unapologetic apologist for the black church. But if you must be in a multi-ethnic, multicultural space, then it is only healthy to the degree that people of different backgrounds, different races, different ethnicities can bring their full selves without sacrificing their cultural heritage, their racial heritage on the altar of whiteness. A racial reformation requires reminding ourselves of the doctrine of the image of God and what that means for race and the church. Now, a second thing. You know, this is the year 2019. In God's good planning, this is the year we've had our conference, but it's also a year where we remember the date 1619. That is a date when Africans were forcibly brought to the coast of colonial Virginia, and it serves as historical shorthand for what became race-based chattel slavery. Now, all of you are well-informed folks, active in your communities and paying attention to the news, so you've probably heard of the 1619 Project. The 1619 Project was spearheaded by an investigative journalist, Nicole Hannah-Jones, who works for New York Times Magazine, and she wrote, the aim of the project is to reframe the country's history, understanding 1619 as our true founding, not 1776. Different starting points lead to different destinations. And placing the consequences of slavery and the contributions of black Americans at the very center of the story, we tell ourselves about who we are. In doing so, you reframe this idea of American exceptionalism to understand that the birth of this nation was in the economic exploitation and the ontological denigration of black people. Now listen, on this project, dozens of authors and scholars and poets contributed to it. They were fact-checked and double fact-checked. This is, this is precise. This is careful work. This is historical scholarly consensus reviewed and peer-reviewed. But did you see the response? <laughs> Some people absolutely lost their minds. 
to say that America and the founding fathers were racist? You're telling me our whole history is about racism? You're a race baiter. You're, 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 you're skewing history. You're being selective with the facts. Hmm. It's those kinds of reactions that necessitate, necessitate something like the 1619 Project. So, 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 so here's the deal. The United States has yet to reckon with its racist past. A racial reformation requires a reckoning. And guess what? We're going to start that process right now. <clears throat> so, let me recount to you a bit of U.S. history. 1667. A group of Anglican men, all white, and in this day, you had to be a member in good standing of a church in order to be an elected official. A group of all-white Anglican men passed a law concerning baptism. This is what they wrote. It is enacted and declared by this grand assembly <laughs> and the authority thereof that the conferring of baptism doth not alter the condition of the person as to his bondage or freedom. Can I make it plain? This group of white Anglican men said to enslaved Africans, we want you to be Christians, but here's the deal. If you accept Christianity, you also have to accept what we say, which is that God can have your soul, but we have your body. Do you know the significance of the timing of this? This is 1667, more than a century before the Declaration of Independence, more than a century before the Constitution was ratified, which means these issues, this, this intertwining of race, religion, and politics predates the political entity known as the United States, which means you can't separate them. So don't talk to me about Christians not being political. Why? Because they passed a law about race concerning religion, so you can't undo that damage without changing the laws, without engaging in politics. Understand that politics is different than partisanship. That's a different talk. Let me tell you about Jonathan Edwards. Did you know... Did you know that, that, that some scholars, and I'll let you guess their socio-cultural location, some scholars named Jonathan Edwards as America's greatest theologian. He's most known for a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He was an instrumental preacher in the revivals during the Great Awakening. Now that's the typical info you hear about Jonathan Edwards. In the circles I was in, I heard dozens of pastors and preachers and uh, 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 professors and, and writers reference Jonathan Edwards in these positive, uncritical terms. 
wasn't until later when I did the research on my own. Because when you go to seminary, there's, there's a curriculum and then there's the curriculum. There's the curriculum that they give you. And there's a curriculum that you have to craft for yourself because you know that the interests and concerns of people of color are different than what is being taught in the classroom. So when I, when I went to the curriculum inside the curriculum is when I learned that Edwards owned slaves. He was born in 1703, ministered in Northampton, Massachusetts. So guess what? That's not the Deep South. Bigotry knows no boundaries. Racism is no respecter of the Mason-Dixon line. (laughs) By the age of 28, Edwards had purchased his first enslaved African. Sister Akemeni, at the beginning of her talk, told us to hold the names She said to hold the names of the Ibibio people. And I remember Asuqua. Jonathan Edwards' first slave was a young black girl named Venus. We say her name. That wasn't his only enslaved person. Likely he also enslaved Joseph, Lee, Titus, and for all of them, we say your name. Now get this, Edwards represented a supposedly moderate view of slavery. Why was it moderate? Because he was one of those Christians who actually believed that black people had souls. There were some Christians and non-Christians who would argue that, 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 that Africans were basically beasts, basically animals. A long time later, at the beginning of the 20th century, someone wrote a book entitled The Negro, A Man or a Beast. He came down on the side of beast. But Edwards wasn't like that. Edwards believed that African people had souls and therefore should be evangelized so that they could accept the gospel. But Edwards never advocated for physical emancipation. Never advocated for the freedom of these embodied souls that he enslaved. If a racial reformation is to occur, then you would not mention people like Jonathan Edwards, our supposed theological heroes, without mentioning that they enslaved people who look like me. That wouldn't require a separate curriculum. A racial reformation requires a reckoning. Let me tell you about one other example. Any Baptists in here? (laughs) Don't want to admit it. Southern Baptists, 1845, split off from their northern brethren and sisters. But here's the thing. We knew it was over racism and slavery, but what really caught me is the specific issue at hand which forced the split. 
So look, even though the Civil War broke out in 1861, the divisions between North and South were already forming. You could actually look at what was happening in Christian churches as precursors of what happened in the Civil War. So those rifts were evident in the church and split the church even before it split the nation. In 1844, a Georgia Baptist convention, they put forth a man named James E. Reeve, who was a slaveholding missionary. They put him forth as a candidate to the Home Mission Society. So Reeve's status as a slave owner forced members of the society's executive board to decide. You either approve Reeve as a missionary and thereby tacitly endorse slave owning, or you refuse him and tell all the Baptists in the South that you disagree with their stance on slavery. At first, the committee basically dodged the question. But then Baptists in Alabama submitted another resolution demanding that the National Convention state plainly whether they viewed slaveholding as a sin. So finally, forced into making a definitive decision, the Home Mission Society said this, if, however, anyone should offer himself as a missionary, having slaves, and should insist on retaining them as his property, we could not appoint him. So they said, you hold slaves, you can't be a missionary. But what gets me is, this was over a missionary. Somebody appointed, ordained, and sent to go overseas to all these poor black and brown people who needed the gospel. And yet, at home, you were perfectly fine enslaving those people here who look just like the people over there. If you want to bring the gospel over here, and preach salvation and liberation and freedom, but you won't do it over here. It was over a missionary. Let me give you one last example and bring it up a little bit closer to the present. Billy Graham. Now, for half a century, Billy Graham was viewed as the face of American evangelicalism. And like Edwards, compared to some others, he was a racial moderate. 1953, the story goes, he, he was at one of his crusades and he personally took down the ropes dividing black and white. Now that's a year before Brown v. Board. It's a very risky move. 1957, he has none other than Martin Luther King Jr. pray at the opening of one of his crusades. But Graham's form of racial reconciliation is the perfect example of evangelical views on race. It's the individual versus the institutional. It's the pietistic versus the activistic. They're not mutually exclusive, but they have been understood that way. So what Graham said was, the way to solve America's racial crisis is one soul at a time. If you convert enough people to Christianity, then they will live like Christians and they will be less racist. 
Absent from Graham's analysis of the racial situation was anything systemic and institutional. Any idea that policies might create friction between individuals. Furthermore, despite his gestures at reconciliation, Graham allied and aligned himself with people like Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon employed the so-called Southern strategy and played on tropes of law and order, which meant get those Negroes under control. Now, Graham was nowhere near as outspoken about his racial views as people like Bob Jones or Jerry Falwell or Junior, you could add, and the televangelists that made up the religious right and the moral majority. Instead, Graham represents what Martin Luther King Jr. called the white moderate. Letter from a Birmingham jail, 1963, he writes, I must confess that over the past few years I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. He goes on to say that shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. Can I get a witness? These are the truths of history that we as a church have to reckon with. A racial reformation requires reckoning with a racist past. Lastly, one phrase of the Protestant Reformation was semper reformanda, always reforming. So let's use our sanctified imaginations and let's talk about what a racial reformation would actually look like. What would it entail? Number one, we have to go back to the image of God and re-exegete it unpack it for a new generation and a new time. In an increasingly racially and ethnically diverse world, we need to understand the foundational biblical teaching about God creating all human beings in God's image and likeness. It sets up our views of how to treat people. And we are in one of the most pluralistic societies you can imagine. We better understand how to interact with people who aren't like us. Because that's more and more what's happening. Number two, a racial reformation would require a reformation of education. We need a revolution in our theological and ecclesiastical education. We need theology books written by black people, women and men, instead of uh, 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 just dead white men. If you want to be really real, we need to start a new seminary. It would have diversity at its foundation instead of being added on to the top like garnish. It would not be optional, but it would be required. You wouldn't have to go and have an alternate curriculum because it's embedded in the curriculum. We need a revolution in education. We need an emphasis on the ethical teaching and application of the Bible. So, 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 so look, the, the, the starting points of Eurocentric and Afrocentric theology are different. Okay, so Eurocentric theology tends to start in the New Testament, 
It loves the epistles. It loves Paul. They, 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 they start with the resurrection and triumph. Afrocentric Christianity tends to start in the Old Testament with the Exodus, themes of liberation, the cross, and suffering. Those two starting points lead you to different applications. Black theology in America has always developed in the midst of oppression and injustice, and it hits different when you're suffering versus when you're prospering. The white American church needs the black church to help them understand what it means to live as exiles in your own land. So many white Christians are wringing their hands about losing power and they're wondering, they're having conferences and writing books. What are we going to do in the 21st century when people don't like us? And all I can say is, we're right here. We've been doing it all along. You want to know how to sing songs in a strange land? Then you need to come to Ebenezer Missionary Baptist Church. If you want to know what it's like to be oppressed, depressed, marginalized, rejected, ousted, you come to the black church. You look at what the sermons say. You look at what the gospel songs say. You look at blues music. It's all right there. But you got to humble yourself to be under the teaching of black people. In a racial reformation, the last shall be first. A racial reformation will not only transform racial relationships, it will also transform class and gender relationships too. Did you know that the Bible says there's neither Jew or Gentile, slave or free, nor is there male and female? You are all one in Christ Jesus. So if we actually revisit the scriptures in light of a racial reformation with the image of God as a foundational doctrine, then it's not just going to affect how we see people across racial and ethnic lines, but how we see people across male and female lines, of the way we see people across rich and poor lines too. There are ripple effects. And we are caught in this inescapable web of mutuality. Women in the racial reformation will have a far more prominent role. The poor must have a voice. And of course, black Christians and other people of color will be the most prominent leaders. European descended people are going to have to step back. They're going to have to listen and learn from others. The racial reformation may not even be American. The racial reformation may not be Western. Christianity is vibrant and exploding on continents like Africa, in countries like Nigeria and Kenya. We got to look to Central America and South America if we want to understand how to be Christians in the 21st century. We got to decenter ourselves as Americans. We need to look to the two-thirds world, the majority world, most of which is made up of very poor black and brown people, and we need to look at them for revival. I have to confess, I told you, the racial reformation requires three things. A reminder, a reckoning, and a reformation, but it needs one more. The racial reformation requires a redeemer. Ephesians 2, 
14 to 16, for he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Let me break it down. A racial reformation brings together people from different tribes, tongues, races, ethnicities. But that can only happen when Christ himself is our peace. Christ has destroyed the barrier and bashed down the dividing wall of hostility. That is past tense, saints. In Christ, our Redeemer, we are a new humanity. Those who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In Christ alone, we become one body. We become a reconciled people because we put off the hostility because of the death on the cross. So the good news, brothers and sisters, is that reconciliation. And I know that word is loaded. I'm using the Bible reconciliation. Cosmic reconciliation between God and us. And between each other has been achieved. We walk around acting like it may be, it might be, possibly. The Bible said God has reconciled us. So we don't have to doubt. We don't have to despair. We don't have to wonder, can we do this? Can we make it happen? Can we survive another 400 years should the Lord tarry? You can work, but you work with confidence. And you can do all this because reconciliation is not something you have to achieve. It is something you have to receive. It's already been accomplished, beloved. You already have the power. I'm almost done. I just need you to rock with me a little bit more. (laughs) A racial reformation requires more than words. It requires deeds. A racial reformation requires more than intention. It requires action. I don't know if you came here thinking you were just going to listen. I got a call to action for you. Typically in October, at The Witness, we make a big announcement about what our focus or new initiative is for the upcoming year. So in 2017... We announced that we were changing our name from the Reformed African-American Network to The Witness, a black Christian collective. In 2018, (laughs) you love it, Tyler. In 2018, on October 31st, Reformation Day, we announced our first national conference. The Joy and Justice Conference. In 2019, I'm not going to make you wait till October 31st. I'm going to announce it right now. But before I do, 
Let me testify a little bit. Now, as I testify, you got to understand that part of testimony is talking about the challenges that you have faced in life. This conference, y'all, has been a trial. It's taught us a lot of things. We face challenges in, in, in many ways. Uh, number one, it was our first time ever doing this. Number two, we're all working remotely. We're not in the same place. Number three, hardly any of us get paid. The witness ain't never written me a check, y'all. I do this out of the love of people and the love of God. And I'm happy to do it. I'll do that however God calls me, however long. We don't do this for ourselves. But I'll tell you honestly that, 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 that amongst the challenges, the one challenge that threatened to derail us, the one challenge that could have made this conference not happen was something that, 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 that sounds very earthly, something that sounds very base, something that does not sound very spiritual. The one thing that threatened to derail this conference in terms of, of challenges was money. We didn't have it. I don't know if we do yet. <laughs> we, we, we wrote the checks. Just give us a little time before you cash it. <laughs> you know how that goes. But here's the thing. It wasn't just for this conference. Since 2011, when we started this thing, people asked me, what's your annual budget? I said, we ain't never had enough money to have a budget. Like, literally, we don't have one. And it's not just the witness. How many of y'all have struggled to finance the vision God has given you? How many of y'all have a heart heavy for people you want to help them because of your love of God and love of neighbor, but you haven't had the resources to be able to do it? And I'm not talking just about spiritual resources. I'm not talking about being real holy about it. I'm going to do it and God is going to provide. I get that. That's what we've been doing. But I'm talking about actual financial resources. And can I let you in on something? Why, why do I do what I do? Number one, I want my life to resonate into eternity for the glory of God. We don't get but a few years on this earth. And, and, and I think from the perspective of eternity, if we don't give our full selves to God's glory and God's mission, we're going to look back and say, what a waste. What I could have done with my life. I'll also tell you that part of the reason why I do what I do is because I study history. And I want my life to be worthy of the saints who came before me. I want to be able in heaven to look at Fannie Lou Hamer and say, I followed your lead. I want to be able to look at Coretta Scott King and say, I followed your lead. I want to be able to look at Medgar Evers, who was assassinated in his own driveway, and his widow carried that pain and raised their children and continued to be a, 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 a pursuit in pursuit of racial reconciliation. I want to be able to look at Medgar Evers and Merle Evers and be able to say, I followed your example. And so, so, so when I get scared of the vision God has given, I remember the saints who came before me. 
And I try to view with spiritual eyes the perspective of eternity. And that is why, with fear and trembling, but with faith and hope that God will do exceeding abundantly beyond all that I can ask or think, I am announcing the formation of the Witness Foundation. The goal of the Witness Foundation is to fuel a 21st century reformation in the Christian church by providing financial support to black Christian ministries. To do this, we plan to raise $1 million. This will act as the principal sum that we will invest in an interest-bearing account, and we will use that interest to offer grants to black Christian ministries. The Reformation needs resources. Y'all, we are not just about words here. We are going to take a leap of faith and know that our God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. That if we need a million dollars to resource the vision God has given us, God will provide it. We want to build our own tables. We don't want to always rely on other people to finance the vision that God has given us. We know that we are made in the image and likeness of God and we are capable and we are worthy and we know that we are facing a historic racial wealth gap and all of that. But greater is he who is in us than who is in the world. We want people who are doing work that benefits the black Christian community to know they have a place to go where when God gives them a vision and a mission, and we're not going to put strings attached to your blackness. You're not going to have to downplay your culture. You can be bold about justice. You can be bold about the gospel, and you won't have to so, sort of shrink yourself in, under the white gaze. That's what we want. We want independence. It doesn't mean we reject other people. It means that God has given us two feet to stand on too. It means, here's the thing. What's to prevent this financial crisis from happening the next time we do a conference? What's to prevent the crunch the next time you get a vision? The question is, who will interrupt the cycle? Who's going to stand in the gap? Who's going to take that step of faith and say, no more. Never again will my children have to face the same want and lack that I do. And I don't know if I'll even be alive to see it, but I'll tell you one thing, I'm going to try. So here's your job. I want to enlist you in the vision. I want to enlist you in the mission. A million dollars is a lot of money, but it's really not. A thousand churches giving $1,000 a one-time gift will get us to a million dollars. You got a small group of 10 people. You each contribute $10 a month for a year. We're over a thousand dollars. We can break this thing down. Some of y'all know people who can write checks for 10, 20, $30,000 without blinking an eye or even checking the balance in their bank account. 
We don't have the same social, political, economic networks that white folk do and can finance their vision and dreams, but we can build them. And if we don't do it, who's going to do it? The Witness Foundation. Please have a seat. Now listen, there are two types of people in the room. (laughs) The first kind of person is pumped about the vision. Yeah, let's go, let's do it. The second type of person, how y'all going to do that? <laughs> Who, who's going to be part of this? What are the criteria? What, what are the bylaws? <laughs> I get it. I get it. We got to do It's real. So listen, it's real easy to get hype at a conference. But this is a multi-year, multi-phase process. It's going to take a while. So you got to gauge your level of commitment. I'm not asking for donations right now or anything like that. I'm just asking you to count the cost. Because it's going to be more than a month or three or a year. Unless God says different. I'm going to leave it open. All I can say is we've made it public. It's happening. I can't tell you when. I have vague ideas about how. And you will be receiving frequent updates. We have a page on the witnessbcc.com slash foundation. It's a placeholder. We're going to get a full website up soon. We're going to have frequently asked questions, and we're going to keep you up to date on the process. But the only thing I think I need now, Tyler, is prayer for the Witness Foundation. So would you join us as Tyler leads us? in prayer about a component of the racial reformation that leads us to a measure of financial independence. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.